Luke 9, verses 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to, you, to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone, tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Thanks, Rosie. Good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you. Um, like Rosie said, my name's Rory. I'm, I'm part of the staff team here at HTC. I'm, I lead the worship team, the production team. Um, it's great to be here uh, all together today. Well done for being in London on the bank holiday weekend. I know that's uh, for some a sacrifice for some. It's a real joy. It's great to have you here tonight. Um, let me just pray as we begin tonight, as we start to look at that passage. Jesus, there is no one like you. So Lord, we pray as we look at your word tonight, would you help us to see that and to know that? And Lord, I pray that as we have this reminder that there is no one like you, that you'd help us to respond again to you tonight. So be with us now, help me um, come and be at work by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Live your best life. It's a mantra for our time, the self-help inspiration telling us to be who we want to be and do what you want to do. Live your best life. Oprah made it famous a while back. Uh, she once said, living your best life is your most important journey in life. And that phrase became such a hit for her that in 2005, Oprah magazine published a book called Live Your Best Life, a treasury of wisdom, wit, advice, interviews, and inspiration from O, the Oprah magazine. <laughs> Last year, the artist Ben Rector released a song as well called Living My Best Life, all about how for him, living his best life is not the fame that he has earned or the platinum records he's got or playing huge sold-out shows every night. But for him, living his best life is just being a dad at home. He sings this in his song, this house is now a litany, things I thought I'd never be. A man who has opinions on an Ottoman, among other things. I used to think I'd miss the road, the crushing fame and sold out shows. Now I just sing head, shoulders, knees and toes like I'd forgotten them. But I'm alive and baby, I'm thriving. I'm living my best life. 
and maybe this August bank holiday weekend, out of every weekend in the whole year, is the epitome of when we should be living our best life. The sun's finally out, and there's a three-day weekend, and all the cares of the world can be pushed to one side as we bask in all that Clapham has to offer us. Life is light and breezy as you live your best life. So I wonder for you right now, what does living your best life look like? Whatever you think that is, this passage that Rosie read for us tonight, that it should hit really hard. It has to. There's no beating around the bush here from Jesus. There is a big challenge for each and every one of us tonight. And the question that we've got to consider as we think about this passage is this. What does Jesus say living my best life looks like? Um, A few years ago, the HTC Kids team uh, did a teaching series all about God's promises. They were teaching all the kids um, all these promises about who God is. And one of the promises is really relevant for tonight, and it's this. The best life is found when I choose to follow Jesus. The best life is found when I choose to follow Jesus. Why? Because of who it is that we're following. Because we're in this sermon series, aren't we? There's no one like Jesus We've been seeing him traveling throughout Galilee, healing the sick, forgiving sinners, welcoming outcasts, commanding power over storms and demons, raising dead people back to life, providing physically and sustaining spiritually everyone he meets. You can't help but think of those things and think, oh, there is no one like Jesus. And that was the rumor that was spreading throughout this region of Galilee at the time. And there were huge crowds coming to meet Jesus, coming to see him, who wanted to hear what he had to to say and do what he was doing. And that leads us to where we are today in tonight's passage. Jesus is with his disciples in private. There's no one else around. And he takes this opportunity to ask the disciples, "Who who do the crowds say that I am? Now, the crowds, they've only seen Jesus from afar. They've only witnessed his teachings and his miracles in part. Really, they're not quite sure who this Jesus is. The disciples say this to him, verse 19. They say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. The crowds can't identify who Jesus really is. So then Jesus flips the question from the crowds to the disciples. And he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That's their time to try and identify who Jesus really is. My wife, Hannah, and I, we've got a little boy at home, Simeon. He's one years old. Um, he's a real joy. The last, the last year has been a real journey for us, just learning what it is to parent. Um, and one of the greatest joys of that has been seeing how Simeon has learned to identify us. For the first however many weeks of his life, he really showed no outward sign at all that he knew or cared about us in the slightest, which was lovely of him. But then eventually his eyes would catch ours. And then he began to get familiar with our faces and he would smile at us and then he learned to giggle at us, to cuddle us and now he can point at us across a room and call us mama and dada. After spending time with us, he's learned to identify who we are by the way that we've cared for him and now he can call us by name. And that's what Jesus is asking the disciples to do here. Who am I, he asks them. They'd witnessed these miracles firsthand. 
They'd been by his side consistently for months. They had literally seen the dead raised back to life and watched as Jesus forgave that sinful woman. They'd been in the boat when Jesus had calmed the storm and they had been the ones handing out that, those few loaves of bread and fish that never ran out. They've chatted and prayed with him about everything and anything. They know him as a friend. And now they've got this chance to tell Jesus who they think he really is. They know that he's more than John the Baptist or Elijah. They know that he must be sent from God. They know that there is no one like him. And so Peter, being the keen being that he always was, confidently answers. And he says, Jesus, you, you are the Messiah. You are God's Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one sent from God, the long-awaited deliverer of Israel, the Son of God. It's this massive moment in, in Luke's account of the gospel. The disciples are saying, Jesus, we know who you are. We recognize you. Now, we can't read this passage without knowing Jesus asking us that question as well. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say he is? Now, of course, we haven't been the disciples' feet at this point. We've not seen what they've seen. We've not witnessed what they've witnessed. But all that we've read about Jesus so far in the sermon series and as you read the gospel accounts, it only really points us towards one answer. And tonight, as we think about how we might answer that question, I reckon we fall into one of two camps. And the first camp is, you may be here tonight and you're not a Christian. Amazing, welcome, great to see you. Come and, come and do Alpha, as Zim was saying. It'd be great to see you there. A chance to explore some more about who Jesus is. Maybe you've already been exploring who he is. You've heard about him, what he's done, the forgiveness that he offers you, the eternal life on offer. And now you're being faced with this big question. I'm going to say the most important question in your life ever. Who do you say Jesus is? If you're here tonight and, and that is you, and you're battling, you may well be battling with this question, and you're probably concerned about what the consequences to your answers are. You're concerned that saying that Jesus is Lord means that you won't actually be able to live your best life that he'll steal your joy, that he'll steal your freedom. Can I tell you tonight that that is a lie? Um, a friend of mine recently expressed this so well in a song that he wrote. Um, he's a, a worship leader down in Bournemouth, and um, he wrote a song about um, a conversation that he'd had with a friend about their disagreements about who Jesus was. The song's called My Jesus. My friend's Jamie Pritchard, and he sings this in the song. He says, let me sit you down and tell you about my Jesus, the one that I could never live without. You might say, he's just a crutch. I'll say, he sure does hold me up. Let me tell you about my Jesus, my friend. The decision to choose to follow Jesus isn't a crutch. Jesus never holds us down. He holds us up. He's for you. He's not against you. The song continues, he's forgiven you more than you could ever know. That doesn't sound like a crutch to me. So who do you say Jesus is? You may have come across the famous missionary in China um, in the 
end of the 19th century, um, a guy called James Hudson Taylor. And he once said this phrase that has become quite popular and famous. He said, Christ is Lord of all or not at all. He's Lord of all or not at all. There's no middle ground there. One or the other. So tonight, which is it for you? And that leads us on to the kind of second camp of people here tonight, which I imagine is probably the majority of us. Those of us that are are Christians, that are followers of Jesus already. And this is still a really important question for us tonight as well. Because the question kind of changes slightly from who do you say Jesus is to is Jesus really Lord of all my life? Or am I saying that Jesus is Lord on a Sunday when I'm here? But on Monday, my life tells a totally different story. Look at what Jesus says about people who do just that. Verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If I say Jesus is Lord of my life, but I'm not living like he is, I'm going to be in a sorry spot on that day when he returns in all his glory. And I don't like the sound of that. Um, the New York pastor, Rich Villadas, who some of you would have heard um, speak at Focus recently. Um, he recently posted this online um, on Threads. Anyone, anyone on Threads? No, great, just me. Perfect. Um, proclaiming faith in Jesus without aligning with the way of Jesus is just another way to deny Jesus. When faith in Jesus doesn't lead to putting on Christ, our faith turns into a strategy to secure power eliminate enemies, and avoid a cross-shaped life. Jesus himself led a cross-shaped life for us. He knew that is what he had to do. He tells us that. um, He tells his disciples that in verse 22. He knew that he must suffer and be rejected and be killed. And so for us too, the implications of identifying Jesus as the Messiah proclaiming faith in him and choosing to live with him as Lord of our lives, it is a drastic thing to do. We too must choose to live a cross-shaped life like Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus says to his disciples next. Verse 23, and this is kind of our key verse for tonight. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus is the one who demands surrender, total surrender. He says, whoever wants to be my disciples must. That's a really key word there, must. And on the surface, that sounds oppressive or like a dictator. It doesn't sound fun or fulfilling or like a best life. And that's partly because of right now the way that we think about surrender in our society. Surrender is a dirty word. Surrender is something that we wouldn't choose, but something that is forced upon us. An extreme example, um, we've seen what happens in Russia this week when you don't surrender to the president. Fit the mold or you're out is the narrative. It's driven by fear, fear of what will happen if we don't surrender. We're afraid of losing our jobs, so we surrender to our employers every will. Work, work, work. We're afraid of being forgotten, so we surrender to every social pressure. Do, do, do. We're afraid of being cancelled, 
So we surrender to cancel culture and we accept, accept, accept. It's exhausting, it's demeaning, it's belittling. And I'm so sorry if that's your story right now. And so as we read Jesus' words here, demanding our surrender, it, it sounds really grating. Demanding surrender, how can that be okay? However, that surrender that we've just been talking about is not the surrender that Jesus asks of us. Surrendering to Jesus looks totally different because the one we are surrendering to is our loving, our caring, our forgiving saviour. He is not oppressive. He doesn't want you to fear. He will never demean or belittle you. He doesn't promise an easy life when we choose to surrender to him. It's still gonna be costly and painful and difficult, but it is the best life because it is a life with an invitation to know freedom, to know purpose, and to know intimacy with the living God. So let's unpack that a little bit. Let's, we'll go through verse 23 in a little bit more detail now. Verse 23 tells us that surrendering to Jesus looks like three things. The first is this, deny yourself. Being told to deny yourself sounds like being forced to diet or fast. Anyone ever tried fasting? Um, I tried once, and for me, it was a miserable experience. Um, I love food. I couldn't stop thinking about where the next meal was. I got hangry probably within the first hour of the day. Denying yourself sounds like being forced into a lesser life. And in some ways, that is exactly what Jesus is saying. There are things for all of us that we will have to lay down or remove ourselves from or steer clear of to help us follow Jesus wholeheartedly. In this room tonight, there'll be a huge spectrum of what that means for us individually. Some of us will immediately think of um, a few small things that may feel slightly insignificant or not very costly. And others of us will know that there are huge, life-changing, life-defining decisions to make that are so costly. Something that might feel of smaller cost um, is something that I've been challenging myself with recently. Hasn't been going very well, but it's the decision just to prioritize an extra few minutes each morning to read my Bible, spend time with Jesus, rather than sleeping a few more minutes, which I've got to say, as a parent of a little one, is a precious time. But I'm guilty of getting that wrong. There's a cost to it, but it's so worth paying that cost. Or maybe you know the cost of sacrificing your time and resources for the sake of your friends or family. Parents in the room will know this better than most. Um, You sacrifice years of life to dirty nappies and sleepless nights and trying to bring your children up to love Jesus even when they're screeching their house down. There's a cost to it, but it's worth it. Or maybe you know the cost of giving up a career to serve others. I think of people here at HTC who have done that. They've given up careers to go and care for their family. They've given up their status. They've given up their influence at work to be with those who need the love and care of Jesus the most. I think of those who have followed Jesus' call into church ministry to the awkward comments and disbelief in the office. There's a cost to it, but it's worth it. 
And perhaps the biggest cost for some of us tonight is around romantic relationships. And that is whether you are single, whether you're dating, or whether you are married. What does Jesus say denying yourself and surrendering to him looks like in that part of your life? How are you serving your spouse even in your exhaustion? How are you caring for those that you're dating in your actions? How are you honoring Jesus in your longing? How are you conducting yourself when no one is looking? There's a cost to it, but it is worth it. And that's the beauty of surrendering to Jesus, where the cost is great, the reward is so much greater. Because Jesus says, deny yourself and find freedom. He says in verse 24, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. He's saying what the world says is your best life. Deny yourself that life because that is how ultimately you can know and live in the best life that is on offer. He continues in verse 25. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? You can't gain the whole world and save your life. Those two things aren't compatible. It's like being at a crossroads where the paths take you in totally different directions. You can't travel on both at the same time. That might sound a shame, but really it's the best news. It could feel like a crutch that we have to abandon that exciting path that the world has to offer us. But Jesus says, by doing that, you can live in freedom. Deny yourself that path, find freedom in him. There's no longer a need to strive and fight your way to gain You're free of that. You no longer need to prove yourself. You are seen, you are known, you are loved, you are accepted. So deny yourself and find freedom in Jesus. So that's the first mark of surrender in that verse. The second mark is this, to take up your cross daily. It's worth thinking of what this imagery of taking up your cross would have triggered for the disciples when Jesus said this. For them, seeing someone take up a cross would have meant actual crucifixion, death, a common Roman punishment at that time. So the disciples would have understood the seriousness of what it is they're being called to in this moment. If you were carrying your cross on the way to be crucified, you were on a one-way journey. There's no turning back. You've left everything behind. So that begs the question of us. Are we ready to do that? Are we ready to leave everything behind for Jesus? Will you bear that cross? A few weeks ago, um, I saw this interview with the First Lady of Ukraine, um, Elena Zelenska, and she was interviewed by The Independent about the ongoing war between Ukraine and Russia. And she was asked the question, what would you say your message is to the outside world at this time? And as part of her reply, she said something that was just really like, hard-hitting. She said this, Ukrainians are paying for the war with their lives. The rest of the world pays with its resources. It's humbling hearing that. It's heartbreaking. And obviously, it's in a very different way. But maybe there's something we can learn from that about what it is to surrender to Jesus 
and take up our cross for him. Is the cross that we bear right now one that bears our whole lives? Or does it just consist of a little time and resource over here and there, just to tick a box that makes us feel like we've done something good and Christian, and when we silo it off from the rest of our lives? Or maybe it feels like tonight that the cross you're bearing is actually empty because you've actually not left anything behind at all. And Jesus says this is a daily surrender. We take up our cross of surrendering to Jesus each and every day. Can I look back on each day and say that I have left everything behind for Jesus? More often than not, no. So again, this feels like a heavy task, a daily surrender, it's a huge commitment. But think of what Jesus is inviting us into. He's saying, take up your cross daily and know purpose. Purpose because Jesus tells us that there's a day coming when we can fully experience his glory as we enter eternal life. We live expectant of that day and that gives us purpose now. So you can know purpose as you surrender to Jesus each day. Purpose as you take up your cross for him. Purpose as you reflect the forgiveness that you've received and the hope that you have in him. And then the third mark of surrender is this. It's to follow Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. It's a gentle, it's a generous invitation for us all. An open hand reaching out for you, saying, come, come follow me. I'll be with you every step. It's the invitation of the one who has forgiven you more than you know to come and experience his tender care each and every moment. So follow Jesus and experience intimacy. Intimacy with the only one who could ever truly satisfy your soul. Intimacy with the most faithful of friends, the brother who will never leave us or forsake us. And we find this intimacy in surrender because Jesus has surrendered everything for intimacy with us. Jesus himself was put at a crossroads with a choice of either saving or losing his life. And he chose to lose his life for you and for me. He chose you by denying himself, by taking up his cross and following the path up the hill to Calvary, where in front of the cheering and mocking crowds, he was beaten and hung up on the cross and left to die. The cost was great. He wept tears of grief and sorrow and screamed in agony as his body was torn and his life was lost. The cost was great, but the reward was greater. The sting of death forever broken as he was raised to life again and the invitation for each one of us to know everlasting life with him. That's the intimacy that we're offered Intimacy with the one who knows the cost that we're paying and the cross we're bearing because he's already paid a far greater cost than we ever will know. He doesn't say it will be easy, but he offers his hand out to you tonight in love. Come, follow me. I am with you always. And in time, I'll bring you home to glory as well. So will you take his hand tonight in surrender? In a sermon about 50 years ago at Westminster Chapel up in central London, 
Um, the Welsh, Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, what you need is not to make resolutions to live a better life, to start fasting and swearing and praying. No, you just begin to say, I rest my faith on him alone who died for my transgressions to stone. The best life is found when I choose to follow Jesus. There's an invitation to find freedom, to know purpose, to experience intimacy with Jesus for each one of us. So as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, rest your faith on him alone. Surrender to him alone because it's surely the best life there could ever be. Amen. Amen. Should we stand? And I'm going to pray. Jesus, there is no one like you. There has never been, there never will be anyone like you. Thank you for surrendering your life for us at the cross. How could we ever respond but in total surrender to you? And in doing that, Lord, thank you for offering us the best life. Sorry where we have tried to live our own best life in our own strength, in our own way. And Lord, I pray tonight that as we respond to what we've heard, I pray you'd help each one of us to surrender afresh tonight. Help us to rest our faith on you alone. Help us to put our trust in you afresh today. Thank you that you offer us freedom and purpose and intimacy with you. Amen.